Well, we've continued on in our series. It's our GBC theme, and of course, there's the, the poster of it for this year. Pressing on toward the goal of Christ. Well, what does that mean, pressing on toward the goal of Christ? Well, Christ is our goal. Christ in Christ-likeness. And we've spent some time showing that from the scriptures, from Philippians. And the first week, we looked at part one, and it was the prerequisite for pressing on. As believers, we're to press on to like to Christ-likeness. But there's a prerequisite. And of course, Paul went into that as a Jew, he was very proficient and blameless in the law. However, all those works do not go toward anything, toward salvation. And when he met the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, he put all those things aside for the excellency of knowing Christ as Savior. And he talks about that it's faith alone. And he put his faith in Christ, and that's how he received the righteousness. So that's the prerequisite. And then he talked about the passion for pressing on. And this was found in Philippians 3.10, where he says, That I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. And all of those things, I believe, are experiential here and now. He wanted to know him, not just as a savior. He already knew him as savior, but he wanted to know him in a deeper way. And he wanted to know him in all of his character and his attributes so that he might emulate him being conformed to his death. And then last week, we looked at the purpose for pressing on. Is it truly Christ-likeness? Is that what... The goal really is for us, and the answer is yes. And first Paul said, it's not that I've obtained it. I have not attained it. The idea he has not obtained perfection. He is not sinless. He is not Christ-like. But he says, I forget what lies behind. I reach forward, and I press on. And in verse 14, it says, I press on toward the goal. And the word for press is a uh, is an athletic term, perhaps of a runter, even a sprinter, where with every muscle he's trying to get to the finish line. And at the very finish line, they, they thrust themselves out across the finish line. And that's the kind of energy that we ought to have in pursuing Christ-likeness. To press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The goal now is to become as much like Christ as we can. The prize is when we get to heaven and we are Christ-like. We don't have to deal anymore with the sinful nature. We are perfected. And the upward call is when God calls us home, be it with the rapture or be it at some point in this life. That is the goal. That's what we're pressing. That's the finish line. So as we pursue this, this sermon is practice of pressing on, the practice of pressing on. This really is what I've wanted to get to since week one. Let's get down to the nuts and bolts. What do we mean, Christ-likeness? What does it mean to put on Christ? And what are those things about Christ and What is the practical way of doing it? Well, that's my prayer for today, that we would learn the practice of pressing on and putting on Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we come before you, now we continue our worship and we ask you, Father, that through the Holy Spirit and the teaching of the word, that we will even be in this sermon conform to the image of Christ, if nothing else, in at least knowledge, and if nothing else, in at least desire. But Father, that is the goal for us, that you uh, continue to uh, perfect us until the day of Jesus Christ. And that perfecting is sanctification, but it's Christ-likeness in a word. So Father, would you indeed use this sermon mightily in our lives, not only today, but all year is our theme And then not only as a theme, but as our life. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. 
amen. <laughs> I love my amen section out there. That is fantastic. That warms my heart. That's almost as good as when my grandchildren come running up yelling Papa and hug me before the service. By the way, I've said it before, but I'll say it again. Any of you can do that. I mean, at any time. Uh, All right. Well, I'd like to begin with the definition of Christ-like, although I think we understand what it is, that he's making us like Christ. And this first definition is a little technical, but there's a reason why. And before I read it, I'd like us to turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, if you turn there. The great epistle of Hebrews talks about the superiority of the Son of God over angels, over Moses, over the Old Testament sacrifices, etc. But here in the very beginning, it's describing him. And in verse 3 of chapter 1 of Hebrews, it says, And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of of his nature. Uh, I think when it comes to the ministry of the second person of the Godhead, the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the one who visibly shows who the invisible God is. And he himself is God. He's God the Son and took on humanity to come and die on the cross. But he's the radiance of his glory. And you think of the Shekinah glory. But it's the phrase, he's the exact representation The Greek word for this is character, character, which we get our English word character from. He's the character of God's nature. Now, this doesn't mean that he's just emulating it. He is it, and it's inherent to him. Just as it says in Colossians, it says that he is the image of God. We were created in the image of God, but we're not God. He is the image of God. And therefore, Christ becomes the perfect model for us as believers to know how we ought to live. And in my definition, I say, therefore, Christ is the perfect model for the believer of God's communicable attributes. All right, communicable means communicable means it's those attributes that man can possess. And the believers will emulate through the power of the Holy Spirit as opposed to incommunicable attributes such as eternality, omniscience, omnipresence. He's, he's not making us God, but there are things like his holiness and his righteousness and mercy and compassion. Those are communicable we as men can express that, but really it's you need to be a believer with the Holy Spirit to express it. I'd like to read a few more definitions, not so technical, but this at least gives us a background of what we're talking about. One writes, the process by which believers are conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ especially in relation to obedience to and trust in God. Through the Holy Spirit, God refashions believers in the image of his Son, who is set before them as a model of the form of the redeemed life. A couple of things in there, very, very important, and we'll talk about them in a little bit more detail, but it's the idea. First of all, it's God doing the conforming. Second of all, Christ is the model. Third of all, it's the Holy Spirit in the believer who's helping produce that in him and through him. This next one brings some of those out clearly. Believers must allow God to make them Christ-like, which is the natural goal of their process of growing in faith or sanctification. Christ-likeness is not achieved by people merely trying to imitate Jesus Christ, but by God making believers more like his son in sanctification through the Spirit. So it's not just a matter of getting all the lists of the 
character of Christ, and then we just try to emulate them. We have to understand it's a spiritual process. This is what God is doing. It's done through the Holy Spirit, and it's through the Holy Spirit that we can apply it. Now, it is good to have a list, as we'll see. It is good to know what are the things that we're being conformed to. Uh, In a simple way, it's Christ's character, his Christ-likeness. But let's go beyond that. What can we learn this morning? Well, and then even a more simple one, which I usually use first, but here I'm using it last. Christ-likeness is Christ living his life in and through believers to produce his character in them. And so Christ in you, the hope of glory, Christ through the Holy Spirit is living in us and through us every moment so that in everything that happens in our life, we respond in Christ-like behavior. That when people see us, they would actually see Christ and be drawn to him. Well, before we go any further, I want to just talk about some of these aspects. Uh, We've talked about them before, but I'm pulling them all together. And it's the prerequisites for Christ-likeness. So before we continue on, let's just cover some of the prerequisites. Then we'll get to actually emulating Christ's character, some of them. There are many. It's it's, uh, boundless. And then, of course, I want to really try to get practical and bring some practical insights for Christ-likeness. But first of all, for the prerequisites for Christ-likeness, and this is important that I say this, and it's important that I say this every week. To become Christ-like, we must first know Christ as Savior and Lord. In other words, it's not like unbelievers can be Christ-like. Now, they may somehow stumble across some of the characters of and qualities of the Christian life, and to some degree they're putting them in, but it's of no value. It's of no value to God as if God accepts that, and if they do enough of those, he'll take them into heaven. That's not it at all. We must know Christ as Lord and Savior. We must have the Holy Spirit in us who produces this. And so it's salvation first. The first prerequisite to Christ-likeness is to come to Christ. There could be no spiritual progress in Christ-likeness for an unbeliever who does not have the Holy Spirit. So there's many reasons to come to Christ, and this is one of them among the fact that when you come to Christ, Lord Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross for my sin. I trust you as my Savior. You receive forgiveness of sins, eternal life, the Holy Spirit, and God begins this process of Christ-likeness. But you must come to him and place your faith in him. That's where it all begins. It's salvation and then sanctification. Salvation is the work of Christ. Sanctification is God's work in us, and there is a sense of cooperation there. Well, secondly, to become Christ-like, we must know that God's purpose is to make us like Christ. So in other words, am I just making that up? Because I thought, hey, that'd make a good sermon. Let's just say we're going to be Christ-like. No, the scriptures talk about that. And we've mentioned it last week, and I'm going to mention a little bit now, but this whole process of sanctification, and we could look at, you really could look at the several aspects, uh, present sanctification, future sanctification, and, and we're, what we're really talking about is his sanctification now, that he's making us like Christ. Future sanctification is when we become like Christ. Uh, we're perfected. But as we look at this, uh, one of the statements that I like is from Paul in Galatians 4.19. When he writes to them, he says, My children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. This was Paul's ministry. Because this, he understood, was God's plan and program. And there are many scriptures. And one of the things that I kind of regret this morning is not being able to read all of the scripture. But I have much of them there that you can look at them. But for the sake of time, I will try to hit what I believe is the main ones. And perhaps one of the best known verses to show that we're becoming like Christ is Romans 8. 
28 and 29. Would you turn there in your Bibles? This was read this morning. And it reads in the NASB, and we know, and the word for know there is perception, and actually it's a perfect tense, so it means, and we have known and continue to know. We, and we know, we perceive that God causes all things to work together for good. And let's just stop there. Through the understanding of God's attributes, through the understanding of God's word, It is understandable that God's sovereign, his process of sanctification is going to make us like Christ and he's working everything together for good. Now, as we're looking at this, it does say the word all things. So you think of everything in your life, and this is the big picture, and I'm going to try to drive this home at the end. But the big picture is that everything that happens to you, one of the reasons, one of the main reasons it's happening to you is because God is developing Christ-like character in your life. That which is good, all things, the good things, the wonderful things. And sometimes we miss that. You know, the great things in our life um, that happen, that God brings into our life, ought to make us more like Christ. It, first of all, ought to make us thankful. As Christ, uh, certainly in his life, as he prayed and, and put those things in his prayer, we ought to be thankful and giving God the glory and the credit, and thanking him for working in our lives. But also the bad things, and this is the harder one, the, the, all bad things. And I know there's probably some bad things that we would say theologically, that's really hard to, to understand. I agree, except for the fact that this verse says, and we know, we're convinced, we've, we've come to perceive it through knowing God and the scriptures, that God causes all things to work together for good. It tells us right there, whether we understand it deeply and theologically, no matter. It tells us right there. So there's a simplicity in our Bible study that we take the word of God, we believe the word of God, and then those things that are difficult, we'll study them out. They'll come by and by. But because there's a little difficulty, you don't throw your faith away. You come to the, the, the verses that are Simple, the verses that are easily clarified, all things. If it was just the good things or some of the bad things, he would have written it. But it's panta, it's all things. And he says they work together for good. Now, it doesn't mean that they're good and they feel good. It doesn't mean that it doesn't cause disappointment or even, you know, trauma. But God is taking all things and he's working them together. He's putting them together. There's been a lot of different synonyms and illustrations. Uh, Some people have even used the idea of uh, making a cake and you put some of the stuff together. If you eat some of the ingredients just by itself, you would spit it out. But when you put it all together and you make this this beautiful cake, uh, it's all worked together. Another illustration is some see God shaping the believer into the diamond character of Christ. But he's a diamond in the rough. And so God is taking a hammer and a chisel and chipping away. But how does he do that? He does that with all things. When this happens in your life, he's chipping away. When this happens in your life, he's chipping away. It's all to make us more like Christ. And it's for good. What would be good Well, it would be, first of all, his glory. And secondly, it would be for our good. Well, what is our good? It is Christ's likeness. Let me show you in just one second. I'll finish the verse. Work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. Um, Those ought to be a part of our life, but I think he's describing believers there. Those are the ones who are called according to his purpose. Look at verse 29. It goes to verse 29, and this is where he puts it together. So he's working all things together uh, for good. What's the good? He's going to explain it. For, let me explain, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined or predetermined to become conformed 
to the image of his son. And that is one of the greatest scriptures that tells us that God's purpose is to make us like Christ. There are many more, but this is so practical because everything that happens in our life, and you think about all the things that happen in your life, do you always see them as making you like Christ? Or do you always see them making you like Christ immediately? Well, let's move on. But that is a prerequisite for understanding Christ-likeness. Thirdly, to become Christ-like, we must know Christ through the word. So when we say God is making us more like Christ, who is Christ? What are his character and attributes? Um, How do we know him? And there's a sense in which we have to know about Christ, uh, what he did. And as we think about this, we go to scriptures, and there are a lot of them, but you know, in Philippians 3.10, he writes that I may know him. Paul is, is wanting to know him. And we get to know him by his word. And we see all of these attributes that we are to emulate. The miracles and things we cannot emulate. Those are incommunicable, if you will. Only uh, God has those. And of course, he, he allowed certain people to do miracles. They were his prophets in the Old Testament and apostles in the New Testament because they were God's spokesmen. Otherwise, people would know who was speaking the truth and who wasn't. And also, as, as we learn about Christ, as the Holy Spirit is conforming us to Christ, what is it that he's conforming us to? It would, it would seem to me that we'd need to have some understanding that, oh, in this situation, though not the best situation, these are some of the character qualities that he's developing in me. Like what? Well, hang on. We'll talk about that. But just on another note, if you were to take all the scriptures and look at all the things that we are to be and do, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, that would be representative of the vast character of Christ. It's not like Christ has his own character, but the Bible's advocating another. All of those things that you see in the Bible that we are to be and to do, that's Christ-likeness. And of course, Uh, we see those things that we are to emulate in the Bible. God is holy, therefore we are to be holy. And there is a lot of application in the Bible, in the New Testament of how we ought to walk, and the Old Testament for that matter. So we need to know about Christ, and it's vast. I I actually was doing a little uh, searching this week to see if anybody had any lists, and there's a couple of lists rolling around, and some had 49 attributes, and some had more than that. And I, I, think, I think those are good, but I think those fall short of everything, of who he is, and all that we are to emulate. The fourth point that's so necessary, and I want to say this as we pursue Christ-likeness, to become Christ-like, we must yield to the Holy Spirit. This isn't a matter of that the world can take this and they can have a seminar on, hey, let's do character building. Well, they probably can do character building, but they're not doing it in a right relationship with God. They're not doing it unto God. They're not doing it through the power of God. And they're not doing it to glorify God. And so it's a spiritual process. It's a process where we don't do it in and of ourselves. We have to do it in the Holy Spirit. We have to walk in the Spirit. We have to yield to the Holy Spirit. You know, in Ephesians, we talked about being filled with the Spirit. It means to be yield, yielded to the Spirit. Those things that we see in the Word of God, and that's what He's doing in our life, and we're walking in step with Him. Well, you could say, yes, we're putting on the, the fruit of the Spirit. And I just I believe that the fruit of the Spirit is just one other way to describe the character of Christ. You could look at the fruit of the Spirit and say, yes, Christ emulated that. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. And so we must yield to the Spirit's control. We have a new nature. We also have an old nature. But with his 
power with the new nature and the Holy Spirit. We can walk in the new nature. We can have victory over the sinful nature. And that's when and how we walk in Christ-likeness. And then the fifth one, and these are not rocket science principles here, but they're good principles. And according to Steve's devotional yesterday, we're allowed to have redundancy in our in our sermons. Actually, the, the, the apostles say that, both Peter and Paul say it doesn't bother me at all to say it over again because that is how we learn. To become Christ-like, we must sin less. Now, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? Believers should understand that when we sin, we aren't being like Christ. And it's not like, well, you know, oh, this is wonderful. I could be like Christ and I can live any way I want. You know, I could just have, I could be a freedom fighter. I can be an anarchist. I could do anything I want because I have freedom in Christ and I'm becoming like Christ. No, you can't sin. You can't sin and say, I'm being like Christ. Now, Paul has just taught us that we will never be sinless in this life, but we should press on and sin less. And even if you don't get anything out of anything today, but you just get this one principle, the first principle that you would use in being Christ-like is when you recognize within yourself, oh, that wasn't Christ-like. That wasn't a Christ-like attitude. Those weren't Christ-like words. That wasn't a Christ-like action. And, you know, I do believe the Holy Spirit aids us with that. I believe the Holy Spirit convicts us at times like that. So we may not know all of the attributes that he wants us to learn, but we know that ain't it. Well, now let's get to emulating Christ. And again, I didn't put all 49 characters of qualities that they list. I'm only going to go over a few ones that are understandable to us, probably perhaps some of the main ones. But I want to talk about some in just emulating Christ-like character, Christ-likeness. So let's talk about emulating Christ. Well, the first thing that I think that should be emulated is Christ's worship and prayer. There's a lot to be said about worship and prayer. Appreciated Steve teaching yesterday that even before we come to church, we should prepare our hearts for worship. We should. And when we look at Christ, we see that Christ worshiped uh, in the temple, in synagogues, in prayer, much prayer. And his life was a byproduct of his constant worship. And it's very interesting that when Jesus was tempted by Satan and Satan said, bow down and worship me and I'll give you all this. Jesus quoted by memory from Deuteronomy and said, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And of course, there's a little bit of theological tension there. He is God, and yet he became a man. And he did everything that a man should do, including his worship and prayer of God. In fact, he calls the Father his God. And that's what we would do. We would call our heavenly father our God. Remember when he came back uh, after he was resurrected and with Mary, he said, uh, stop clinging to me for I have not yet ascended to the father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my father and your father and my God and your God. And so there is a sense in which in the humanity of Christ, he did everything that a man should do, a godly man, a righteous man, and even in worship and worshiping God. And his life was affected by it, and as is ours. Christ taught and worshiped in the synagogues. Um, As he, it says in uh, Luke 4, you don't have to turn there, verse 15. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath. Did you read that? And as was his custom. 
That was part of his worship. To constantly be as close to God the Father as he could be. And there, do you, ha, do you, can, can you worship outside of church? Yes, and you should. But you should also worship in church as the believers are gathered together. And of course, we see that with Christ. We see Christ worshiping in prayer, and he prayed often, if not unceasingly. He prayed so much that his disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. Because we know you're always praying, because they were looking for him most of the time. Couldn't find him, and they'd find him praying. And, and look at this. When he does teach them to pray, he gives them a model. Not a, not a formula that he says over and over, but in Matthew 6, 9, he says, pray then in this way. And he begins with worship. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Sanctified be your name. Worshiped be your name. And we ought to begin our prayer in worship, in worshiping him, who he is, and all of his attributes. And as, the, as believers, as we're to emulate his worship and prayer, we are to worship in prayer in private. When you do have your devotions in the morning, that is worship. Um, when you pray in private, that is worship. You are worshiping him. And, and it ought to be more than just covering a list, although keep the list, cover the list, but realize it's a sense of worship. And when you come to church, we are worshiping. We are expressly coming to worship. And then it ought to be a byproduct. Do we quit worshiping or what does worship do? Well, it gives us a good time for a couple hours on Sunday morning. Then we go live our life. No, it ought to affect our lives as we leave here. Of course, Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. We ought to do that. And then it says, and this is where it helps, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. That, my friend, is worship being a byproduct in our lives. Well, that's worship and prayer. The next one is righteousness. We are to emulate the righteousness of Christ. And there's a lot to say about each one of these. But we don't have the time to say everything about them. So we'll say as much as we can in the time allotted that we have. Christ was perfectly righteous. One, there was no sin in Christ. And two, everything that the law demanded of him, he did. Now, you know how James says that if you break the law in one point, you've broken the whole law. That's us, not Christ. And so his righteousness is doing God's will, doing the law, doing the right thing all the time. Now, what about us? Well, let's, let's rehearse this again. We're not talking about us keeping the law here. We're under grace. So don't misunderstand that I'm saying that because I'm not. And, and, and again, we're not trying to do works for salvation. I've, I've said that weekly, daily, and so have you. So we're not trying to gain salvation by doing the right things. And, and also, too, we're not even talking about sinlessness. There are believers today who do believe in sinless perfection, sinlessness. As I said before, they're not. They just redefine sin. You know, you, they give it a category. Well, anybody could fit into it then, but they're not. They still have the sinful nature. If they sin in their thought, but don't actually do it, that's sin. If they indeed um, do something, but it's what we would call, well, oops, that was an accident. I didn't mean to do it. Um, that's still sin. And that means you don't understand sin. That's the way sin, you don't have to premeditate sin. It's there and it's ready to, to jump in whenever you step aside. So I'm not talking about those things. We will not 
be sinless in this life, but we should sin less. We will be sinless in the next life. But as we look at Christ, there's a lot of things there. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. By the way, there's, there you go. There's two attributes of Christ right there. Um, he can sympathize. He sympathizes with us. He's gone through it too. He's gone through trials and perhaps more trials than we'll ever know and experience. So, but, so he's able to sympathize. At the same time, he's holy. It says, yet without sin. And of course, when he caught the adulterous woman in, in sin, he forgave her and then said, and go and sin no more. And then even at his baptism, when he was about to be baptized and John the Baptist didn't want to baptize him, and you understand why, because baptism was for sinners to repent. Well, Jesus wasn't a sinner and he didn't need to repent, but this is what he said, permit it at this time. For in this way, it is fitting for us all, for us to fulfill all righteousness. Meaning, this is what man is supposed to do. This is what man is supposed to do and and go through these things. And he did everything to the T and righteous, and he did what was right, even though he didn't have to. But another aspect is he was identifying with sinners, the sinners that he was going to die on the cross for. He's identifying them, truly living out the Messiahship. Well, what about us? Well, we are to emulate Christ's righteousness. Number one, it shows that we're born again in 1 John 2.29. That's what it tells us. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. So the sermon today is just in keeping with God, what God is doing. That's the great thing about preaching, preaching the word, because it's not you and your sermon. You're preaching along with God's program, and we are to put on righteousness. It says, little children, make, no, uh, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. Now, when we're talking about righteousness for salvation, that comes from Christ and Christ alone. But when we become a believer, then we are sanctified, we are made more Christ-like, and one of those things is righteousness to do what is right, to do God's will, to do what is right. Don't lie, don't steal, don't do all those things. It's not right. You're different. You're, you're emulating Christ. You are to be Christ-like. And there will be times when people will say, well, you could do that. It's just a little little change on your your." Uh, your IRS statement, it's, it's okay to just lie here. It's okay to steal here. And that's where you say, no, it's not. Because Jesus Christ is my Savior, and I'm serving him, and I can't do those things. I want to be just like him. And so you, you see how practical it gets. The next one is obedience. And it kind of goes hand in hand. If he's perfectly righteous... That means that in where he was to obey, he perfectly obeyed. But it's interesting because the scriptures do talk about both. So we're allowed to talk about both. And Christ was obedient, perfectly obedient. And by the way, theologically, when we say that Christ's righteousness is imputed to us, it's the righteousness that he... um, that he demonstrated on earth. In other words, the sinless one died for our sins. The righteous one gave us his righteousness from his righteous life. And that was by being obedient. And the obedience of Christ is is prophesied. Uh, Back in Psalms, it says, Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. That's quoted again in Hebrews and is speaking of Christ coming to do God's will. Obey. John 4, 34, Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. It was all about obedience. You know, very, very well could see why Paul says, yeah, we have to have the same thing and we have to press on. 
In Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, I'll ask you to turn here, and I'll ask you to keep your finger in your, in your phone at this spot. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, I guess you can bookmark it. It says, and by the way, this is one of the, this is one of the very important scriptures about Christ's character. It tells us in verse 5, let this attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And he describes it. And there's a multitude of them here. It says, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. Obedient to the point of death. Even the death on a cross. That is total obedience. Well, believers are to emulate Christ's obedience. And in their desire, we ought to have the desire to obey. And I, I think that is one of the things you do realize that as a very young Christian. You know, you realize that at times you, you don't fulfill these things. But, it, but you recognize for the first time, but it's in my heart. I want to do it. And that's good because that's the Holy Spirit, Spirit putting the desire there. He also puts the will and the power there too. We just need to avail ourselves of it. And in Romans chapter 6, verse 16, that chapter where it talks about yielding to the Holy Spirit, having put the old nature away, having the new nature, this is what he says with those with the new nature. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? And of course, he has already worked through that new nature and the new self. And all of our actions ought to be in obedience. And we ought to be teaching our children these things. We teach these things to our children because it's written in the word of God. It's principles from the word. But I think we should also teach our kids, hey, look, this is Christ-like living. Do you want to be like Jesus? Do you want to live Christ-like? Well, then you can't do this. You have to be obedient in this. This is wrong. You have to recognize what's wrong. You have to recognize it as sin. And you have to confess your sin. You have to teach them. You have to teach them how to live the Christian life. And so you need to know it so that you teach them. Next, we have humility. And that last verse talked about humility before obedience. I'll read it again if your finger is still there. It said, Philippians 2.8, being found in appearance as a man. So, so the Son of God, clear in the verses that it's of his deity, but he added humanity and he did what a man should do. He does what a human being should do. They should humble themselves. We don't walk proudly before God. We walk humbly before God. We serve him. We worship him. So it says, in being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. Of course he did. He's perfect. And he's perfect in humility. And that's why he was perfect in obedience. And one of the other aspects of humility is the fact of being a servant. And Christ really was the ultimate ser servant, was he not? Um, in Mark 10, he said, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and ultimately to give his life a ransom for many. And so these, we're, we're going through some of the character qualities of, of Christ-likeness. And this, this ought to be written down. This ought to be what we're pressing for. And then finally, the last one, and I could still keep going on and on, would be love. We have to emulate the love and we are commanded by him to love. But his supreme act of love is this, that he died on the cross for our sins. And it is interesting that sometimes in the Greek, it's written in past tense, loved us. What, doesn't he love us anymore? Of course he does. But the greatest demonstration of his love, there's no higher, was his demonstration by dying on the cross for our sins. He met our deepest need, which was our sin and needing forgiveness. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, 
Christ died for us. Ephesians 5, you remember that some time ago? Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. We also learn about his great love. We could go on and on about this and I'm thankful we did have some opportunity in Ephesians to look at his great love, but his love is so great that we'll never be separated from his love. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, not even ourselves, will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So believers ought to emulate this love. In fact, um, this is a preeminent one that is commanded in the New Testament. I think we ought to have all of the attributes of Christ, but perhaps this one's mentioned so most because we need to hear it so much. We need to exhibit love. To the loveless, we need to exhibit love. The world needs to hear about the love of God in Christ. But as we do emulate Christ's love, it shows that we are his disciples, does it not? A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Here's where he sets the bar. Even as I have loved you. So he's asking us to emulate him, emulate his love. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so we ought to emulate that. So these are five five important character qualities. You could go the whole list of 49, but I'm going to now just move to a very practical point with the time that I have, and that is practical insights for Christ-likeness. When something happens to you, How can you figure it out to see what Christ-like character is is he developing? Again, you need to know the Lord. You need to know his word. And then you, you can put the two together that this is what he is bringing in my life. And many things are things that we experience, like persecution. We experience it, and now we know what Christ felt like when he experienced it. Again, the overriding principle here is Romans 8, 28 and 29. This is where we get this idea from, that if all things work together for good, all things are making us more like Christ, well, let's go through some of them. Well, what about persecution? Well, if we go through persecution and suffering, it is to give us an example to follow in Christ's steps. And we see a number of these things that if Christ went through them, we go through them to know what Christ went through and we're to go through them in the same way as Christ. It's an opportunity for Christ-like character. 1 Peter 2.21, we know it. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Christ-likeness. But what, what do we learn other than persecution hurts? What do we learn from that? Well, when we look at Christ, we see his faithfulness to God even through persecution. It says that he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously when he was reviled. We learn endurance, not just endurance to do a task, but endurance to go through the Christian life and go through persecution. Hebrews 12, 2 fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. There ought to be some joy in this. We see that in the apostles as they were singing at night uh, in jail because God counted them worthy to be persecuted for Christ. And it's also a testimony to others. When people see your behavior and see 
this persecution working in you, it's incredible. And we've heard this. We've heard from other peoples in other countries that have gone through persecution and they ask for prayer. I would, you would, but they don't ask for prayer necessarily for them to get out. They ask for prayer that they would have opportunity to share Christ while they're in prison. We have testimony of hearing that. By the way, I I don't want to take a lot of time on this, but I I mentioned something about when Caleb went over to India uh, about a month ago. His church sent him over there uh, to, to get to know the missionary in India. But And they didn't doubt him. They weren't calling the missionary a liar, but they just kept hearing things from over there and they kind of wanted to know if it was true. Some of it was the persecution. And it was absolutely true. As Kale was telling me that when when they would have church services, there was a Hindu temple right across the street. And every time they had services, they would come out beating drums and, and, uh, you know, uh, crying out and trying to distract them. Um, so that's when they do their hymn sing, and then they try to outsing them. But that's persecution, and it doesn't it doesn't just stop there. I mean, that's just a small tip of the iceberg of why they do that. You know, uh, there, there's a, a status in India, four four levels of status. The number one would be the elite can have anything they want, but then there's a fourth status of untouchables. Someone with leprosy would be put into that category, untouchable. Well, if you become a Christian in India, you become an untouchable, which also means that when you go to the grocery store, there'll be some grocery stores that want nothing to do with untouchables, and it's the persecution. And you think to yourself, like Americans, why don't you just go somewhere else? Well, probably if they did, you probably encounter the same thing. They don't want to go to somewhere else. This is their home. They want to be a testimony for Christ where they are. Uh, Caleb said that some of the, place, some of the places that um, he went, they, they kind of tried to keep his presence incognito. And I thought, well, that would work. I mean, he kind of reminds me of an Indian, right? You know, big, tall, white, big white guy. Yeah, yeah. Well, but, he, but he does have the accent down. He, I don't know how he ever learned that, but he, he has the accent down. But anyway, just talking about the persecution and they're enduring it and the joy. And what do you think the Lord is teaching them there? Christ-like character and an opportunity to be a testimony to others. Well, quickly, I need to move on. But what about if you go through trials and you're going through devastating trials and hardships, things that are very, very hard? Well, we're being conformed to Christ and we're being conformed to Christ's submission Submission to God's will. Well, how do you know? Well, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was going through a hardship and a trial where unbelievably he prayed, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. In the same breath though, yet not as I will, but as you will. And that's not sin what he did, to experience it. To experience it to that degree, to say, if it's possible, take this from me. And of course, we could talk theologically why. I think it's because he didn't want to uh, have the wrath of God upon him while he was on the cross with the sins of man. But it's the idea, still he said, I'll be submissive to your will. So you can struggle with the emotions. Emotions aren't necessarily sin. And this is how you work through emotions. A lot of times Christians get hung up on the emotions, but here Jesus shows us how to work through them. And of course, he prayed again. My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. And then again, a third time. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. When you go through hardships and trials, ones that you would prefer not to, What are you supposed to learn? You're supposed to learn submission to the Father's will, like Christ. Endurance. All right, what about servant? We talked a little bit about a servant, but let's kind of go down this road a little bit more. What about being a servant? And, and of course, they always say that the test of that is when you get treated like a servant, when you get treated like a slave. That's the test of your servanthood. Well, 
we know that Christ was a servant. He was humble. And so he says, uh, look, the, the, the pupil is not greater than the teacher. And like when he washed their feet and he said, you know, I've washed your feet. I showed you the example. Now you go, you go do likewise. What about disappointments? Can you be disappointed in life? Sure you can. What about disappointments? Did Christ um, experience disappointments? I, I think so. Like the time when he wept over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And of course, this is where you find the passage in Jesus wept. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And, and, and as we're going through the Old Testament in 1 Kings and 2 Kings, that's where one of the kingdoms is, is in the southern kingdom. And, and, and it's there in Jerusalem. And this is where Solomon's temple was. And this is where you would go to worship God. And he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who sent her. How often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not have it. And this was Christ. So there was disappointments there. There was this idea of of disappointment. How How do you get through that? Well, you do get through it. It may cause you to weep, but you understand that God is in control. He's working all things for good. And we also know that part of that good could be he could bring that whole thing around whatever your disappointment is. How about sorrows? What if you experience sorrows? Well, wasn't Jesus described in Isaiah 53 as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief? And, and, and a lot of those sorrows would have been for the way that others are and don't turn, the way that the Jewish people rejected him. That certainly would have been there. By the way, what do you do when you're rejected by people? You know, I'm thinking particularly of unbelievers who don't want the Lord and are persecuting you because you know Christ. How should you feel? Just like Christ felt. And, and we're kind of moving towards how he responded. And we'll talk about that here. Well, let's just go ahead and read it. In Isaiah 53, verse 3, He was despised and forsaken of men a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. And Peter quotes, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. Well, that's the first thing we do is we respond verbally and we get them back. We don't get even we get them back. That's not Christ-like character. And all of these things and, and how we're treated. How about when Christ said, but I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other also to him. I think it's pretty clear that the Christian life is completely different from how the world views it. It's actually different from how most believers view it. You know, it's not just being good enough to a degree. It's the idea that you're Christ-like. You go the whole hundred yards. Somebody it does something to you. You don't retaliate. You show that humble submission to God, trusting God, and you look for an opportunity to minister to that person. When you're reviled, you don't say anything back harsh. And that's hard. That is hard. It's hard for some of us. Some of us have that ingrained in their, in their own character. Some of, some of us have been raised with that. Our parents have been good. I think my mom had the sharpest tongue in the West. Man, and uh, I felt it many a time. What about, what about this? Let's move on from that. What about difficult people? Dealing with difficult people. God brings difficult people in your life, whether a family member, of course, that goes without saying, right? <laughs> In-laws and outlaws, just kidding. Or, or, or someone at your job, a difficult person. Just for some reason, I mean, you can't reason with them. Uh, they just, they just, wow, just a blank going on there. Well, you think God might be trying to conform us to Christ in patience and wisdom? I think we see this with the Lord Jesus Christ and his 12 disciples, right? 
I mean, a lot of that went on with the disciples. And yet, what's great about that is he knew the spiritual potential in them when they would receive the Holy Spirit. He knew what they would do. He told Peter about when Peter was going to reject him three times. But when he returned, when he returned, so he had that, that viewpoint. And, and when we deal with difficult people, there should, we should never give up on them. And we should use patience. And we should have wisdom of how, how to deal with those things. What about unbelievers? Dealing with unbelievers who are always arguing against Christ and against Christianity. Well, we're being conformed to Christ. Like how he dealt with Nicodemus. Nicodemus was there, was questioning him. Of course, we believe that Nicodemus came to Christ. But he says to him in verse 3 of John 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus didn't know how to answer that. He, He couldn't understand it. And Jesus said, which I think was so important and wise at that point, Are you a teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? We also see in 2 Timothy, we see Paul writes about this and says, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged. We wouldn't even have to go on. With gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. That is Christ-like living. We say, Lord, make us more like Christ. And then we have all these things in our life and we just complain about it. Oh, you can't believe what kind of life I have. Yeah, I do. I know what kind of life you have. You have a kind of life that is using all things to work together for good to make you more like Christ. What about forgiveness? Have you ever been offended? Or dealing with the sins of others? Well, we're being conformed to Christ with his forgiveness and restoration. Like with the adulterous woman, he asked where her, uh, those who were condemning her, where they were. And she said, they're not here. And he says, he says, I do not condemn you either. He's forgiving her. And then he says, go from now on, sin no more. There's forgiveness and restoration. Now, one thing I should say, if we're having problem with people and difficulty of people, it could be our problem, and it could be something that we may have to deal with, and we may even have to make things right with them. So that's the other thing that that is done. But here's another one. What about diligence? And and this will be the last one for the sake of time. Diligence. Suppose you're asked to do something by your boss, or your higher boss, your wife, you know, if you're asked to do something, or you have a hard task, it's your job maybe, or you need to do it, it's a responsibility in your home, and you're asked to do this hard task, you're being conformed to the image of Christ there, to be diligent. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ said, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. There's diligence. And you know, when it comes to being fathers and heads of the home, sometimes when we talk about you need to lead them spiritually, you need to have devotions, and we say, that's too hard. It's time to learn Christ-like character. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Christ-likeness and strength and in diligence and going forward in obedience. And on and on is the list. And really what you do is you, you say, okay, this is what God is doing what could possibly be the character of Christ in the scriptures that I see him doing that he wants me to do here or become that? If, if, you, if you have a problem with patience, he will bring situations in your life. It's very hard to be patient, okay? And I know people say, well, don't pray for patience because that's what will happen. God's a little smarter than that. You don't have to pray for patience. He's still going to do it. So you might as well pray for patience. The same thing with love. Lord, I, I, I want more love in my life. Well, there's going to be people in your life that are unloving. Well, what, what do you think he's trying to do here? Well, he's trying to teach you the love of Christ. He's trying to, to, to develop that in you so that you emulate it, so that people hear the gospel, so that people come and grow in Christ, 
all of this the Lord is doing. Well, these are the things that I wanted to say in regard to the practice of pressing on. And what I really mean to say is that pressing on toward the goal of Christ is what? Press on towards Christ's likeness. He's our goal now, here, and when we get to heaven. Of course, that will be done for us. I would just like to read something to close out. And this is from Jonathan Edwards, describes the character, the multiple, multiple character of Christ. It says, particularly impressive to readers over the centuries has been what one writer, Jonathan Edwards, has called an admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies in Jesus Christ. That is, in him, we see qualities and virtues we would ordinarily consider incompatible in the same person. We would never think they could be combined, but because they are, they are strikingly beautiful. Jesus combines high majesty with the greatest humility. He joins the strongest commitment to justice with astonishing mercy and grace. And he reveals a transcendent self-sufficiency and yet entire trust in and reliance upon his heavenly father. We are surprised to see tenderness without any weakness, boldness without harshness, humility without any uncertainty. Indeed, accompanied by a towering confidence in God and his word. Readers can discover for themselves his unbending convictions, but complete approachability. His insistence on truth, but always bathed in love. His power without insensitivity. Integrity without rigidity. Passion without prejudice. What a great way to describe the beauty of Christ-likeness of our Lord. So, Christ-likeness for the believer is the purpose and plan of God. Christ-likeness is accomplished by Christ living in us and through us by the Holy Spirit. The empowered believer cooperates by emulating the excellencies of Christ that are revealed in his word. Our response is to forget what is behind, reach forward to what is ahead, and always, always, always keep pressing on toward the goal of Christ. Let's pray. Father, as we not only mention your salvation, and I would pray if there's anyone here that has never trusted Christ, may they come to you, Lord, knowing that that he died on the cross for their sins. Lord Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for me. I trust you as my Savior for forgiveness of sins. Father, we also thank you for that salvation, but then now we're thinking about sanctification. You would make us with the capability and power of the Holy Spirit to emulate the most beautiful person that we know the most loving person that we know, the most gracious person that we know, the most righteous person, humble, obedient, the Lord Jesus Christ. You would actually adorn us with his attributes. Oh, Lord, thank you for this. And now, Lord, help us to press on and live up to it, to Christ's likeness. And we'll give you the praise and the glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.